Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health and Wellness Coaching Podcast. My name is Brad Cooper, and I'll be your host. And today marks the third of the episodes we've had over the last few months covering how to optimize our lives as we move through the decades. So as we move from our 20s to our 50s to our 80s and beyond, how do we make the most of that time? How do we make sure that we're optimizing our lives as we age? In May, we had Professor Alan Castell out of UCLA. In June, we had 75-year-old Ironman triathlete Ken Ola. And today, we have the co-founder of Training Peaks, a gentleman who's been coaching athletes for 40 years, a guy who, frankly, if you're in the endurance world, needs absolutely no introduction. But if you're not, you're going to be super intrigued by this. He wrote a book a few years ago titled Fast After 50. I've got it sitting here next to me. And, and it was essentially how to optimize performance physically as we move through the years. How to stop using the excuse of, well, I'm 40 now, or I'm 50 now, or 60, or 70, or 80, or whatever. Stop using that as an excuse and saying, well, what can I do differently to adjust for the natural things that happen over time? And we're going to get into that in great detail. Really excited about today. Thanks for joining us. Regardless of where you are in the endurance, athlete, competitive spectrum, won't matter. Because the things he's going to talk about apply to every single one of us. Couple of updates. The next two Wellness Coach Fast Track certification weekends are coming up just around the corner. August 16th and 17th will be in New Jersey, and August 24th and 25th will be in Colorado. If you'd like any details on that, you can always email us at results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com or check out the new website at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Now, on with the latest episode of the Catalyst Health and Wellness Coaching Podcast. Joe Friel, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I've been reading your books and involved with your training peaks and all the other great things you've been doing for the endurance world for literally decades. It's a huge pleasure to have a chance to talk with you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Brad. Thank you for asking me. I'm, I'm flattered that um, you would think of inviting me to, to speak on your, on your uh, podcast. I, I look oh. forward to it. Absolutely. No doubt. This will be a good one. Our audience knows your bio. I've, I've given a little introduction to you in case they don't already know you, but can you give us the short version about how you ended up becoming all these different things? The co-founder of Training Peaks, written multiple books, literally the chairman of USA Triathlon's National Coaching Commission, and basically one of the world's foremost experts when it comes to endurance and fitness. That's, that's a lot of stuff. How, how, how'd you get here? Well, it's um, it's been a long journey. I started doing this back in the 1970s, I guess, as far as starting a career. So it's not like it happened overnight. It's been going on for a long time. I just <laughs> keep checking. Just uh, quite honestly, I've just been doing all this stuff because I I enjoy it. I'm number one. I'm curious when it comes to sports science. I'm always very curious about uh, the best way to train, and that wasn't so I could write books or or start training picks or anything else. That was just so I could be a better athlete. In fact, I went back and got my master's degree back in the 70s. And the reason I got it was because I wanted to see if I could improve my marathon performance. Mm. You know, I've never done this stuff for other people. I've always done it just for me. <laughs> but somehow I've been fortunate enough to have that work out to be something that has become a career without even trying, quite honestly. Very cool. The timing of your fast after 50 was fantastic. Loved, loved the book. Could not set it down. I'm so tired of people saying, well, I'm not as fast as I was since I turned, you know, fill in the blank, 40, 50, 45, whatever. Right. The, the reality, and you brought this out so nicely in your book, is that, yes, age matters. You're not going to run as fast at 50 as you were at 26. But 
it's also not a cliff. We don't, we don't slow down instantaneously. It's, it's generally because we haven't been doing the intervals, the weights, the tempo work, all the things that got us fast to begin with. You took that head on. What, what's been the general response to your book? What, what are people saying? Are you getting feedback of, oh, Joe, you're crazy. This is ridiculous. Or, or, or what have you heard out there? Well, it's always fun to get feedback from people who read my books, and I've gotten quite a bit on this book. Uh, I think as people get older, um, they had the same questions going on in their heads that I had going on in my head that led me to write the book, which is what can I expect to happen as I get to whatever that new number may be. Mm -hmm. And uh, the response I've gotten has always been very positive. I've had many, many people who have written me and told me that they've applied what I talked about in the book. And uh, their performances have improved, which doesn't surprise me because I know what typically happens as people get older is they do things that cause performance to, for example, kind of gravitating towards just doing long, slow distance all the time and mm. not really doing any high intensity at all. That That's very common for athletes to do it as they get older. So if I get somebody to start doing high intensity training, there's the possibility, of the high probability that they'll uh, improve their performance. So, so it's been actually very, very positive. I've never, quite honestly, I've never had one person write and say, hey, it doesn't work. Every one of them has said, gosh, you know, it's, it's really working out well for me. And, and so feedback has been very uh, positive. Why is it so common to have us all, almost all, fall into that, well, it's because of my age? What do you think is going on with that? You know, I think what goes on is as we do get older, first of all, as we get older, there are things that happen in our lives that, that begin to uh, put demands on our time. For example, when my son had his first daughter, first child, only child actually, uh, he was in his uh, 30s. And up until that time, he had been a cyclist, raced in Europe, very, very good athlete, yeah. always had been from the time he was a teenager on he was just always a good athlete, and that continued even after marriage. But then when his first child came along, I had a conversation with him and told him that, you know, you're about to enter the most difficult time of your life in terms of <laughs> not only not only training, but also just life in itself. Right. Uh, there's just going to be a lot of things placing demands on your time. You're going to, you know, if you're at the age, you know, when you're in your 30s, you're trying to grow a career, for example. You, You've got to pay the bills. Not easy when you're in your 30s trying to do that because you're still establishing yourself within your career field. And yet at the same time, you've, you're, you've got to be a good father. Um, you know, you've got to help raise a child. So both of those things take time. It takes time to be to, to grow your career. It takes time to also uh, uh, grow a family. And so yeah. no matter what you do, you're going to be wrong. It's going to be a catch-22. You, you put a lot of time into your career so you can make enough money. Family's going to suffer. A lot of time in your family, um, which is a good thing to do in lots of ways, your your career is going to suffer. So you've got a balancing act going on here, which you've never had before, and this is the worst time because you're now at the phase where everything is is kind of a, a mismatch of uh, your time versus your money and uh, your and your responsibilities. And as you get older, we, there are lots of things like this that occur in our lives, and they they, they begin to interfere with our training. Uh, my son went through that stage when his child was, you know, relatively uh, young, small, you know, infant in early uh, grade school years. Now she's 16. And so consequently, he's starting to get his life back again. Uh, 
she's got she drives herself here and there. She doesn't have to have her dad be her chauffeur <laughs> anymore. Right. Um, you know, and you know, you, you know how it changes. Sure. This, this that you know, there's more. She's more independent now than when she was a young child, and so he he's become more independent because of it, as as his wife. Consequently, um, he started back to train again. Now he started to do pretty well again in racing. So, uh, and and those sorts of things just keep happening throughout our lives. And as they happen, the thing that we realize is that we're getting older, and we so we tend not to put the blame where it's actually it should be placed, which is lifestyle stuff. Mm. We place it on uh, the easy excuse for why I'm not doing as well as I did a few years ago. I'm a few years older now, and so I think it's just it's just a matter of all the change in our lives, and but age becomes the constant we're always aware of. And as we hit those big numbers, you know, those like 40, 50, 70, as we hit those numbers, those really our attention there's an old saying that it takes about 10 years to get used to how old you are and i think that's uh, just right that uh, you know when you turn 50 uh, you still you still feel like you're you shouldn't be 40 but all this new <laughs> number that's you and it just doesn't seem right so it's hard to imagine so how do i define myself as being 50 whereas just a year ago is defining myself as being 40 so you know it, it just catches our attention and it causes us to ask questions and that's how the book came about. I went to a very same set of questions when I turned, in this case, 70. You know, I still thought of myself as being 60. And here I am all of a sudden at this number seven zero after my name. What does that mean to me? And so it set me on this path, which eventually resulted in, in that book. Do you think there's a difference between athletes and the general population? Because so many folks that are competing at whatever level, it could be local 5Ks, Ironmans, whatever, it's almost like you look forward to that next eight. Okay, so now I'm in the 45 group. Now I'm in the 50 group. Now I'm in the 60 group. Now I'm in the 70 group. Do, do you see a difference where the athletes, people that are actively pursuing something, they see that as a, a positive, like, all oh, right, now I'm in the new group, whereas the general population, maybe it's the opposite of, oh man, now I'm 50, now I'm 60, now I'm 70, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's, I think that's, that's the... Uh... The athlete mentality is that it's it's uh, athletes tend to be positive people, which is one of the reasons mm -hmm. I I've always True. enjoyed being a coach is because you're always working with positive people. They're always they're always thinking about what they can what they can accomplish and how they can do it and all this kind of stuff. So they're always always very positive. Whereas the general population isn't quite that way. Mm -hmm. um, they're a little bit not quite inclined to be as positive as an athlete is. So an athlete is always thinking in terms of, gosh, now I'm moving up to 50. That's a, that's a great opportunity for me because <laughs> I can, you know, I can, I'm now taking on people who are, who are older than me. Right. But quite honestly, it never really gets any easier. And so, uh, so that, that probably is where it comes from. It's just the athlete's positive way of seeing the world, which is really kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You, you start off your, your book, one, one of the first sections talking about this aging myth. Why is that so rampant? And do you think it's changing at all since you wrote the book? Uh, aging myth is a uh, really big. I, I really can't explain it. It just comes down to the psychology of being a human being, I guess. Mm. And so as we move up to age 50, we think, gosh, I'm in my 50s now. 50s is a, implies to me that, there's, that I'm old. Because when I was in my 40s, I didn't think of myself as being really old. I was you know, still a fairly young person. No, I'm in my 50s, and, and I kind of, I'm seeing that as, you know, I've always thought of 50s as being old. And so, you know, it kind of gets on, gets the back of our minds that when we turn 50, especially, that that is a, a, a dividing point 
in life. That somehow, from this point on, nothing is going to be the same. And it probably goes back to, uh, uh, you know, our, our, when we were growing up as kids, we saw our parents and, and our neighbors, you know, they were also in their 50s at one time. And we knew they were old. Uh, no <laughs> question in our minds, those people were old. Uh, they were so much different than us that, uh, you know, so we began to see people being in their 50s or old, bigger numbers than that as being really very old people. But back in those days, uh, you know, likely that those people were not athletes. They were, you know, this, they weren't the athletes that we see today in their 50s. They were basically, you know, not not involved in anything besides their career and their family. They didn't really get involved in, in activities like triathlon or road uh, racing or cycling or whatever it may be. Right. They just didn't get involved in that kind of stuff in, in, in those days. And now going back, you know, several, several decades here in, in American history. And so uh, as we move into our 50s, we begin to so realize that, you know, at one point we said our, our parents and our neighbors uh, and, and their age groups in their 50s were old people. And now I'm in my 50s, therefore I must be an old person. And so it changes our perspective on who we are. And probably I'll see you from one day, you know, the, the 365th day of being 49 is really not significantly different from the first day of being 50. Um, so, you know, that it's, it's, it's all in our heads. Right. Um, this whole thing of aging, it, 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 as you mentioned, there's no doubt that as we get older, things do change. It's not like it doesn't, we know it's changing, but it doesn't change at a rapid rate. It's extremely small, the rate of change. And that rate of change can be modified, can be amended, if you will, by the, by the athlete. It's, comes down to basically lifestyle and training. Yeah. And that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, beautiful. Well, we're going to talk about more broad health and wellness here in a second, but for the athletes that are listening, what what are some of the keys and and hopefully we can nudge them to read in your full book, but what are some of the keys to remaining competitive as you do get into your 50s, 60s, 70s, and even we have 80s and and 90s that are competing consistently now. So can you kind of walk us through some of the keys to just keeping that competitive, not just drive, but ability as you move through the decades? Yeah, a good example is a, a friend of mine, uh, Bob Scott. He's a he's a triathlete. Ironman is his uh, favorite distance, half Ironman, full Ironman. And uh, uh, he's now in his 80s. He's been racing for decades. He's also a coach, by the way. And uh, I kind of look up to Bob because he's, he's, oh, he's probably 10 or more years older than I am. And I'm, I'm really amazed at what a, what a great athlete he is. I recall when he was 73, I believe it was, he broke the course record at uh, Ironman Hawaii. He did a 113.30, or I'm sorry, 13 hours, 30 minutes. Wow. Uh, which is for a 73. Three-year-old, excellent time. Set the course record, uh, broke it by a gigantic chunk. I don't recall what the old record was, but it was a gigantic amount. He took off the old record. If we if we were able to uh, uh, normalize race times by age, I sure I'm sure he would have won the race. You know, Seventy-three years old doing thirteen thirty—that that's, uh, that's oh, yeah. really really good. And the difference between Bob and most people I see who are, you know, even in their 50s, is that Bob continues to think of himself as being an athlete. 
and he does things that are very athletic in his lifestyle when he's not training. You know, he's focused on what he eats. He's focused on how much he sleeps. He's focused on what is how his training is going, what he's doing to make sure he's recovered and ready for the next training session. So he's always, you know, even in his 80s, he is still thinking that way, and it allows him to be highly competitive in doing Ironman races into his 80s. Mm. Um, that, that's, he's, a, he's a remarkable individual, and he's not the only one. No. I mentioned several people in the book like that who are, you know, in 70s and 80s, uh, who are uh, remarkable athletes. And it really comes down to a mindset. It, it's just a way of thinking about yourself that, you know, this doesn't mean just because I got this new number behind me, behind my name, it doesn't mean I'm no longer an athlete. I'm, I'm just as much an athlete as I was before. In fact, in some ways, maybe I need to be more of an athlete now as I get into my 50s, 60s, what the number may be. All right. So let's shift the conversation a little bit here. A, a large portion of our audience are health and wellness coaches. So they are helping their clients more broadly, helping them improve their lives with the competition, maybe a part of it, but more off to the side, kind of out there in the peripheral vision. What have you found in your research that they might find beneficial when it comes to helping their clients more, I guess, more broadly make the most of their life, regardless of how old they are, from 30 to 90? Yeah, I think there's three things that um, I I describe in the book uh, that really are the bottom line, what the book is all about. And all the book does really is just kind of fill in the blanks around what does this mean? Um, So three things. Number one is that as we get older, there's no doubt that aerobic capacities are going to uh, decrease. Our VO2 maxes are going to get lower. That's a, that's a, a gigantic marker of our, of our endurance performance is how high our, our uh, VO2 max is. And typically, it falls rather rapidly um, as we get older by, in, in the athlete who um, really quits doing high-intensity training and just starts going out and doing long, slow distance workouts, which is very common, I found, for, for older athletes. They, they tend not to do that high-intensity stuff anymore. don't know exactly why, but we tend to gravitate away from that as we get older. And so if you get the athlete just into doing some high-intensity training again, interval training, it doesn't have to be a gigantic amount. It's just got to be some interval training in there. We can stimulate uh, aerobic capacities. And we won't stop the decrease in aerobic capacity, but we'll slow it down. And in the book, I described some research studies that support this. Some of the best research studies are what we call longitudinal studies. They'll follow people for years, if not decades, which is what the research did that I mentioned in my book. In in those people who they follow for decades, the athletes they follow for decades, they find that the ones who kept on doing high-intensity interval training uh, maintained um, a relatively high level of VO2 max compared especially with those who quit doing high intensity and just started doing long, slow distance workouts. So that's number one is you've got to do some high intensity training. This doesn't mean that all has to be high intensity. It doesn't mean it has to be uh, ridiculously hard, but you've got to do some of it. Uh, if you don't do some of it, I can guarantee aerobic capacity is going to drop faster than it would uh, otherwise. So that's the first thing. So you know what, let me jump is, in real quick on that one. So for the, for the general population on this first one, 
I'm Joe Schmo, and I am not an athlete. I don't see myself as an athlete, but I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, well, hmm, what does that mean for me? Would you suggest things like something like a spin class at their local rec center or just literally when they're on that bike and they're pedaling to throw in some two-minute intervals, some four-minute intervals? Is that the type of thing you're talking about on this for the more general population? Yeah, it could even be what we tend to typically refer to in uh, uh, sports career or sports cycle or sports uh, uh, language as the fartlek training. Sure. In other words, just go hard when you feel like it and go easy when you feel like it. And hard is what you want to make it. Easy is what you want to make it. Perfect. Uh, Doing some of that stuff, just always going out and doing just this, you know, long steady bike ride, which is real low intensity. Do some high intensity stuff thrown in any way you want to it could be just where i live there's nothing flat around here everything is either uphill or downhill right and and so consequently you know it becomes very easy to do high intensity training because i've got all these hills i got to climb some are very short which take 30 seconds to a minute and some are rather long which take you know 5 10 15 minutes to climb and so just by riding those courses they they keep me uh Developing, keep my aerobic capacity from from dropping too rapidly because I can never go out and just do an easy, steady ride. It's not going to happen. So any any way that the athlete can build more intensity into their training is going to be beneficial, so long as they don't overdo it. Because um, you can overdo it, as with anything in life, you can drink too much water. You can do, sure. There's all kinds of things we can do that are good for us, but if we take them to the extreme, they become bad for us. It's the same idea. You just can't start doing high-intensity interval training every time you go out. Right. It's not going to be good for you. It's going to be bad for you. So it's a mixture of these things. It's not just you know one or the other. Excellent. Okay, that's great. That's good advice. I just want to make sure the person that's sitting there saying, well, I'm not really an athlete, Joe. What should I do with this? That's perfect advice. It doesn't matter how long it is. It doesn't have to be the same every time, and it certainly shouldn't be every day. But we need that higher intensity, however you define that in your own life. Okay, perfect. I, I got you off track. What's number two? Number two has to do with uh, muscle mass. As we get older, um, and we're all aware of this. We see people around us who are, you know, older people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And we can see happening is they're, they're becoming really small in terms of muscle mass. They're becoming skin and bone. They just don't have any muscle or skin, fat, and bone. Yeah. They just don't have any. Their muscle mass is, is decreasing quite obviously. You can see a picture of a, of a person when they were in their 20s and how muscular they looked. And now the person is in their 60s. And you can see the difference. There's absolutely no question they've lost muscle mass over the years. That is going to happen to every one of us if we don't do something to um, stop it. Uh, to keep the muscle mass there. So I, I encourage people in the book and describe details around this about uh, doing weightlifting, strength training, because it's very beneficial as we get older. Uh, loss of muscle mass is one of the major problems that people have in their lives when they get into their 70s, 80s, 90s, is they just can't move it anymore. They've lost muscle mass, but all they've got left is just uh, tiny little muscles they have a hard time getting out of chairs. They have a hard time stepping over curbs. They have a hard time just doing anything that requires muscle. Right. And so staying active with, uh, with strength training, uh, typically weightlifting, is very beneficial. Uh, and, we, and, and people tend to think that even when they get older, somehow they cannot 
they can no longer improve their strength. But that's that's a myth. It's not right at all. In fact, there have been a couple of studies I've read uh, where they took people and they had them strength training program, and they also took people who were in their 20s and put them you know, on a strength training program. They had not been one previously. And they found both groups in their 20s and their 90s had the same rate of improvement Beautiful. as far as strength. They didn't improve the same amount because obviously the older person started with a much smaller amount of uh, weight sure. they could lift. Yeah, they yeah. improved at the same rates. So they had the same percentages of improvement in their 90s as compared to somebody in their 20s. That's so this is not something that, that goes away just because you become 50. It doesn't disappear. It's because you change your lifestyle. You're not stressing those muscles anymore. So, so the second thing I emphasize, you need to be working on muscle mass and keeping that as you get older. Uh, and that often involves doing things like lifting weights. It could be body weight. It could be all kinds of things you do that stress the muscle. So that, that's number two on the list. Then number three is as we get older, the, the typical thing that happens is uh, as we're losing muscle is we're gaining fat. Um, it, it's, not a, it's not a trade-off. The muscle is not being replaced by fat. It doesn't work that way. Muscle is disappearing, and fat is appearing as something brand new. It's not something that uh, uh, is being happening physiologically. You know, muscle does not turn into fat. It's just something that's being added onto your body, right. uh, which is not beneficial, and we need to keep that under control. Um, so that involves lots of things, uh, such as diet, which is a gigantic part of this, but also with, uh, with hormones. Um, Hormones, especially stuff like, uh, oh, like uh, growth hormones, uh, testosterone, uh, 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 so forth. There's, there's sure. there are a number of of, uh, of hormones. They're all released uh, during sleep, uh, and that's when the body is doing a great job of helping to kind of rebuild itself, uh, rebuild muscle tissues, for example. And so this is a time when we can keep. Uh, help keep fat at bay uh, by making sure we've got enough uh, these growth hormones going on in our bodies while we're also watching our diets and lifting weights uh, to make some improvements. But unfortunately, what happens is we're just not getting enough sleep in this country. Mm. Uh, people are getting, they're always cutting out things in their, in, in their sleep or cutting out sleep rather in order to fit more things into their daily life, whatever that may be. So we're just trying to get too much into our lives. And because of that, first place the first thing that suffers is sleep and so sleep means we don't get enough hormones hormones means we're not doing enough to keep uh, body composition healthy uh, along with the weight training along with the high intensity training so these things all kind of tie together um, and the sleep is kind of at the crux of the whole issue got to get enough sleep in order for all these things to be beneficial perfect Perfect. It's interesting. Two of our most popular episodes have been sleep specialists. So you are, you're preaching to the choir. Good stuff. Thanks for that reminder. And real interesting to bring that back to the hormone side because that I think a lot of people don't realize that. You've mentioned a lot about research studies, which I love. We try to keep all this evidence-based and not just people's opinion. What, what advice would you have for our listeners to help them falling prey to the old you know, headlines, fads, all the latest stuff that's out there that gets shouted from the mountaintop, but frankly, don't have any evidence behind them. Any, any suggestions for the folks that are wanting to go the evidence route, but they're, they're struggling with that? 
Yeah, typically the evidence you see in, in newspapers and magazines is not the best stuff you can get. Sure. To put it mildly, it's uh, it's often uh, uh, taken out of context, and portions of it are especially in the headlines are blown up to make it more uh, desirable for the uh, for the reader to uh, read the article because the headline sounds intriguing. About you know if you simply do this little thing, it's going to make you live ten years longer or whatever it may be. <laughs> it's always something it's always kind of ridiculous. But if you start, if you really get into the research, the research wasn't really saying that exactly. But somebody's drawing that conclusion from having read the research. So it, it's really uh, uh, you know reading, trying to make decisions based on research you read in the newspapers, magazines, what you read about them rather is probably not the best way to go because it's often exaggerated. It's often taken out of context. Um, they, don't, they don't tell you all the things, all the ifs, ands, wheres, fors, and, and you know, so forth that are in the studies. They just take you to a bottom line that they kind of like and explain it to you. And besides that, we're finding that, you know, I can, I can point out research studies to you that tell you things that you would never believe. Sure. But you'd find hard to believe because... They're so contradictory to things that we've been knowing we've known for decades, but there'll always be a study that comes along, which you know, one study all by itself finds something which is really unusual, and quite often it's because it was just not a good study. All studies are not are not perfect. Uh, some are much better than others, and sometimes we're drawn to those studies that in the magazines and newspapers we're drawn to those because they find something which is really uh, unique and therefore we ought to be doing this whatever it may be but you, you can find a thousand studies that tell you that's not right just work that way you know so we just have so we get occasionally get this bad research and it's not the fault of the researchers often it's just because of the way the research study was designed or the or the subjects they use in the study or the number of subjects they use in the study or a number of variables there that uh, produce research which is not great but uh, we, sometimes we tend to gravitate to those things because they're exciting. And so I'm going to change my life because I'm, and I'm going to live longer because I'm going to drink one more cup of coffee a day. <laughs> or, or, or I'm going to take this vitamin. Or we're not going to take that vitamin anymore. I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. So it's just all this stuff that's always being thrown at us every day. The best thing is just to be a bit skeptical of all the stuff you read. Uh, about research, pills, and so forth, you know, um, probably are better off dealing with people who are experts on this rather than trying to draw conclusions from what an editor for a, for a newspaper writes. Okay, very good. All right, so you have coached literally some of the top endurance athletes in the world over the past several decades. And I'm using the word secret. I know nothing's truly secret anymore, but what would be your top three secrets that separate the good athletes the competitive athletes from the great athletes, regardless of age? Well, number one is, uh, is mindset. There's no doubt about that. Coached, um, uh, as you mentioned, lots of really good athletes, world-class athletes. And I've also coached people who are brand new coming into the sport, whatever sport may be. And um, I can guarantee you that the, the world-class athlete has a rather unique way of seeing the world there, it's not like they're 100%, though. It's not like they, it's not like they don't think they, they had some faults or they had some problems associated with their performances. It's just that they think they can overcome them. Hmm. And the person who has read 
doesn't always have that, that same opinion. They can overcome this problem, whatever it may be. The problem is just too big for me to overcome. And I find that to be one of the major things that, that, that changes the way these two groups of people perform or, or rather interact with their training and, and racing. The really good athlete, the experienced elite athlete, just has this mindset that they can overcome whatever the issue may be, which they know they've got. They know they've got issues. Nobody's perfect. They know they've got issues, but they believe they can overcome it. Hmm. So I think that's, that's like number one. It's, it's always mindset. That, that's gigantic. But we can't also rule out the fact of um, physiology. There are people on the planet who just have exceptional physiology for whatever the sport yeah. may be. I don't care what it is. It's just, you know, they, they were lucky. They were born with this stuff. For example, um, a good swimmer has very long arms and big hands. Uh, if you don't have long arms and big hands, your chances of becoming an elite swimmer are, are really rather small. Sure. Um, you know, you think about a Michael Phelps. I can recall seeing him one time do an interview, the first, first Olympics he did, and they had him on a couch in an interview room. And uh, the couch was designed for three people. He was sitting in the middle of the couch with his arms on the resting on the back, you know, the backrest, <laughs> you know, stretched out, and his, and his hands were hanging over the ends of both ends of the couch. Um, you know, so the arms, his arm length is amazing how long they are. That you know, if you start looking at things like that, that he had he had no control over that. That he got that by genetics. Uh, and there's lots of things. Yeah, I can go down the list. I can sure. tell you, take any sport you want, and I can tell you the things that you can get benef- that are beneficial that you have no control over. Basketball players are tall. You don't find four foot two basketball players. Right. Um, they're going to be seven foot two. You know that that's just the way it is. Right. And, and there's more stuff that we have some control over, but we don't have total control over, like uh, muscle type. You know, the elite athletes, endurance athletes tend to have a lot of type two muscles um, or type one muscles. Sorry. They have a lot of endurance muscle. And consequently, that, you know, that, and that's a, um, something that they got at birth, which is beneficial to the performance. Not all of us have that. So, and the list just goes on and on. So, physiology is certainly a big part of this, uh, along with the mindset. And I think if I had to pick out a, the third thing that probably sets them apart, it's this uh, desire to excel, which is also a mindset sort of thing, but a little bit different. This, this desire to be extremely good at something um, as opposed to just being pretty good at it. There's this desire among, I found among elite athletes to be uh, exceptional in terms of being an athlete. And they've always had this. They've always done it. Maybe it's, maybe it's because of their parents. One of the best athletes I ever coached was uh, an Olympian um, triathlete. And I got to know his parents quite well. Great folks. And I could tell from being around his parents, I could see how he came to be, had this mind, this belief in himself that he could, uh, he could be exceptional hmm. because that was the way they raised him. He saw himself as being exceptional because they saw themselves as being exceptional and they saw him as being exceptional. So it was in his family, they exceptional was common. They saw themselves as being exceptional. So he's out competing to people, you know, when he's in his grade school years, high school years, college years, who didn't grow up with that, that same way of seeing the world that they're exceptional. And, 
so that 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 set him apart from uh, from other athletes. And we could probably go on and on and on. There's all kinds of things, but a lot of come down to this mental uh, perspective that the elite athlete has. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so let's pull that crystal ball out. You've seen a lot of stuff over the years. You've seen you know the heart rate monitor coming into the forefront, the GPS developed, the power meters obviously had a big influence on cyclists. As you look into that crystal ball, any predictions about what we might see in the next 10 years? Well, I can probably take some stabs, but quite honestly, I'm, I'm, I'm really poor at this. Give you an example of that. My son was uh, in, the, in the early 90s was racing as a pro cyclist in Europe. And he called me one day while he was over in Europe, 1992, if I recall right. And uh, clipless pedals had just come out. Ah. Uh, you know, before that, we had the, we had the toe clips, you know, you right. slide your foot into this bear trap sort of thing. You pull a leather strap and lock your foot in place. That was what he grew up using, what I grew up using. Sure. And so he's, you know, so it's, it's 1992, and these new clipless pedals have just come out. And he called me and said, hey, Dad, do you think I ought to change over to the clipless pedals? And I said, no, I wouldn't would do that. I think it's just a fad. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> what are we? We're now like uh, almost 30 years later. And uh, it's just the opposite. That's the standard. Everybody now uses uses clipless pedals. Totally. Uh, you know, if you see somebody using the old bear trap type of pedal, you know, with this leather strap and so forth, that is highly unusual. So I'm really not very good at this stuff. It's trying to predict what's going to happen. I've always been kind of blown away when the stuff comes out and proves itself to be uh, useful, like the power meter, for example, or even heart rate monitor going way, way back in time. But I, I see things all the time because people are, are bouncing things off of me. You know, for example, we've now got a device that hardly anybody uses that helps to measure oxygen saturation in the, in the muscles, um, which has been around medicine for a long time, for decades. But that that's a kind of interesting tool because it tells you how much, you know, how much oxygen you got in the system really is, gets into how much fat you can burn and how good your your endurance is and how great your aerobic capacity is and all this kind of stuff. So you've got these things coming out now for, for athletes that can be worn to, to measure oxygen in, in the system. You know, we'll, we'll eventually be able to measure lactate levels. Probably yeah. can right now. It seems like I heard someplace about this. You can measure lactate levels in the body without making any, drawing any blood, you know, without going into the body itself, without making any dents in it or little pokes and prods and so forth to cause you to believe. You'll measure lactate, uh, which is interesting stuff in itself. It's got a different way of, most athletes think they can use it, but it's interesting information to have. Um, you know, we're getting new ways of seeing the world. We've got people who come along from time to time who change the way we, we see things. Uh, in fact, the power meter is a uh, professor of uh, sports science, but a man, not professor, but a PhD in sports science named Andy Coggin. And he's, he's changed the way we see uh, training with power meters. And he continues to come up with new ideas. The guy's just amazing. Yeah. You know, you would think that, that just seeing a number on your power meter is interesting. Okay, that's my power right now. But he has taken that to the point now that we're looking at all kinds of stuff that is beyond the the, uh, the realm of being able to understand it. in some cases. You almost have to have a PhD to understand what in the world we're doing here anymore. 
It is becoming really, really deep, but extremely viable information about this athlete, what his, current, his or her current status is, and how we can even go about improving it. What, what are things we need to improve? And, and all that comes just from looking at data from the power meter. You know, and, the, and the thing is just amazing. It's unbelievable stuff he's coming up with. And there are other people out there, out there also who are coming up with ideas also that uh, change the way we see the world. So there, and there's, not, there's not a lot of them, but there are enough of them right now that we're changing uh, training. Training is going through, you know, take Stephen Seiler. He's a, he's a professor in sports science in, in uh, Norway. He's the guy who did all the research on uh, starting in the early 2000s on uh, polarized training, you know, the 80-20 concept of training. Lots and lots of low-intensity training and a little bit of very high-intensity training, which kind of takes us back to this uh, VO2 max high-intensity sort of thing I was talking about earlier. But he's changed the way we're seeing the world also. I mean, he's not changing the stuff we're using as far as the equipment. Is changing the way we look at the data that comes out of that equipment, mm. like heart rate data, for example, or power data, or whatever it may be. So he's he's changed the way we see the world also. And those kind of people pop up from time to time, and they just see things differently, and that changes the way, eventually changes the way we all see the world. Polarized training is becoming very common now. Whereas 20, you know, 20 years ago, nobody talked about it. Everybody thought, in fact, the whole idea was was kind of like ridiculous that you do a lot of massive amount, massive amounts of very low intensity training and a small amount of extremely high intensity training. Nobody was even talking about that. Right. He comes along and over the course of a couple of decades almost now, that's become the way of seeing intensity and training. So we, I, I'm always looking for these people who come along with ideas that are different and to see what their idea is and what happens because of that idea. Often they're called nuts and, and they're crackpots and so forth. But um, <laughs> the thing, things they come up with often just challenge you to rethink how we're doing this. So it, those are the things that are, that are most interesting to me as opposed to the hardware. Right. Sort of the people who are coming along that, yeah, that see things a little bit differently. That, yeah. That's what's unique, I think. All right, last question, my friend. You've been a lifelong athlete, competitor. If you were to go back and coach the younger Joe Friel, what words of wisdom do you wish he'd known in his 20s, 30s, and 40s? Well, there's so much stuff. I, <laughs> you know, just, just along that line, I, I'm just kind of like, this is like um, related to that, I guess. Is I had an interesting thing came in my mind the other day, which was what year in my life, what age in my life did I have my best power outputs. Uh, I've been using power meters since 1998. Uh, I was one of the original people started using them back in the early 90s. Actually, I went through a number of years where I didn't have one. Then I finally started using them consistently in 98. And I started collecting data and writing it down, recording it in 2006. And so I've got data. It was turned back to something like about 13 years now. Wow. And my very best power data came out of the year when I was 68 years old. Interesting. I'm now 75. So at 68 years old, I was producing better power out than I was in the several years before that, you know, up, up back till 2006. I was producing better power at age 68 than I was at those, those other years before that. Huh. And it wasn't because I was becoming more powerful, I think, although obviously it was because the numbers are bigger. It was because I was training differently. 
I learned how to use a power meter. That was the big thing that caused that year to be so significant and, and a rather significant change that year was because it was all coming to a head when I was 68. I was learning how to train on a bicycle, even though I thought I knew how to train for decades, right. and how to do it. Once I began to figure out the details of the power meter and what it could do for me, going back to this Coggins thing, I mentioned a while ago, began to apply the principles and so forth that were coming out of all his, his head, for example, that began to have a big impact on my performance. And it was simply because um, of a different way of training. You know, so, so if I had to go back and talk to myself when I was younger, I would tell myself to pay attention to what's going on in the world around me and don't think that people are wrong because they differ with me. I, I try to give myself of the opinion that when I'm having a debate with someone or we disagree on something, I try to keep in the back of my mind this notion that he or she may be right. I may be wrong. I love it. I've been wrong before. You know, I've been wrong before. Uh, I may be wrong this time also, and that person may be right. So even though I may be arguing vehemently with the other person trying to prove my point, I try to keep in the back of my mind always that I could be wrong, which means that the other person could be right, and maybe I ought to be doing what they're suggesting. So, you know, if I could talk to myself when I was back in my 20s and 30s, I would, that would be the thing I would tell myself. Always be open-minded what other people are saying. Don't rule them out because they think differently than you. You may be wrong. That is a, a wonderful way to wrap it up. Thank you again, Joe, for joining us. This is so valuable. Again, I've, I've been reading your stuff for literally decades, and it's, it's fun to be able to chat. So thanks again. Thank you, Brad. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks. So many great tips. Thanks again to Joe Friel. You can follow him on Twitter at jfriel, J-F-R-I-E-L. You can follow me as well if you'd like at Catalyst, the number two, Thrive. So it's Catalyst to Thrive. I thought it was interesting. Two of the three things he identified as secrets, if you will, of sustained performance were related to mindset. Something we can help our clients or, or in our own lives integrate at any age. It's not age-dependent at all. That, I mean, just think about that. The physical from this guy who's been coaching athletes for 40 years comes back to mindset. That's a powerful reminder. Speaking of mindsets, we have finalized our speaker lineup for the September 6th to the 8th coaching retreat and symposium in Estes Park, Colorado. And they have me kicking off the event. So I'm going to be speaking about the practical application of some of our PhD research we pulled together on this concept of functional mental toughness, how you can integrate it as a coach, how you can integrate it in your own life, any of the things you're trying to pursue. If you haven't registered yet, you can check out all the details, all the speakers at catalystcoachinginstitute.com under the retreat tab or emails anytime. Results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Hope to see you there. Thanks again for those of you who've clicked subscribe on iTunes. I'm told that makes it much easier for people to find us. We're here if you need anything at all, anything related to coaching. Email is results at catalystcoachinginstitute.com. Let's keep chasing better, and I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health and Wellness Coaching Podcast. <music>